The federal government spends more on grants each year than it does on procurement. Yet procurement seems to get the constant reform attention. Now a detailed study from the IBM Center for the Business of Government offers a detailed plan for how the government might get better outcomes from the grants that it gives. Joining me with more, the study author, Shelley Metzenbaum. Shelley, good to have you back. Tom, it's great to be back with you. And we should point out it has been an abiding interest of yours. You're not just somebody that wrote a paper. You did grants work for a while at the EPA some years back, and you've also written on this topic prior to this. That's correct. You know, when I was at EPA, I headed up regional operations and state local relations. And the federal government, whether you're talking about EPA or Head Start or highways or traffic safety or even research and development, the federal government uses grants as a primary tool to accomplish its objectives. So being smart about how we manage those grants really makes a difference. And every agency practically does grants. I think it's the most common activity across every agency, isn't it? So the answer is, I can't exactly tell you that, but I'm guessing you're right. You know, and USAspending.gov makes it much easier to see where the spending is going. What's much harder to see is the impact of those grants. And yet, if you think about the research and development area or clean air or whatever, grants have made a huge difference. And we don't have the ability not only to see that story and tell that story so the public understands it better, so grant recipients can learn from it. We don't have the ability to learn from the system as well as we should. And you're writing that the emphasis is on the process of getting grants out the door, and there's a large apparatuses in agencies to do that. But the ability to measure the outcomes and know the outcomes and collect them, that's what's lacking? Well, I'd actually say it's not the ability to measure them. It is the focus on outcomes and to get the data to figure out where to focus and to get the data and other evidence, the findings of well-designed trials to figure out how to improve outcomes. It really is having every grant program be more clear about what its outcome objectives are and making sure it has the data to find ways to improve. And so where do agencies fall short at this point? I mean, say in the spending that was related to the pandemic, a couple of big bills, much of that money, billions, hundreds of billions, was for grants. And the emphasis seemed to be on speed. We need an answer to this. We need to understand that. We need this vaccine. We need this shot, whatever it might be. But do you think the agencies granting that money did the necessary prior work, pre-homework, if you will, to emphasize outcomes? Yeah, so let's be realistic to expect the agencies to do the pre-homework when they couldn't necessarily know this pandemic was going to hit when it did. It's not fair to the agencies. So the question is, have we got a system put in place that helps them manage well? So if you look at the implementation of the Recovery Implementation Office, they had a small unit of people who were really focused on how do we manage the grants. And part of that was getting the dollars out there so it could get spent because you're trying to stimulate the economy in that case, as opposed to what we're dealing with with COVID. But part of it was, you know, some getting the money spent and then being able to say over the long term, is this money doing what we hope it will do or do we need to move it to a different place? And one way of doing that was having frequent conversations with the grant recipients to understand their questions and get them the information they needed. And you can do that for every grant. The challenge is to organize that effort 
around the outcomes first and foremost. So you need to actually be clear about what are our outcome objectives. And then who's bringing people together who have the relevant data, who have the relevant experience, who are out in the field making the difference? How do you bring them together to sort of say, okay, what have we learned? What do we need to do next? New technologies make this more possible than ever. We got to figure out how to tap those, both the analytics and the conversations and the networking for learning. So it's a great opportunity. It's a big challenge. But it's real possible. So going back, another real challenge in the system is that the oversight infrastructure tends to overwhelm the insight generating infrastructure between the GAO and the IGs and even program monitoring. They use terms like assess and track, but for what purpose? I would argue it's for three purposes. One, to figure out where to focus. Think about this with COVID. Okay, clearly we had data that told us we needed to pay attention to COVID, but then within it, it was prevention. Okay, where are we on the vaccine? But also in terms of masks, it was response. How well are the treatments working? And then, you know, it's also going to be economic recovery. So that's very outcomes focused. Our oversight systems in R&D, for example, where R&D researchers have done surveys a few times over the last 10 years, they found that 40% of their time is spent on administrative matters rather than on the program objectives that they're trying to advance. That's the system we need to fix. We're speaking with Shelley Metzenbaum, author of the IBM Center for the Business of Government latest report on grants management. So that sounds like this is something that needs to be built in maybe to the front end in the development of the grants idea and of the process. Can the process be redesigned such that outcomes is much more front and center in the rest of what unwinds once you launch a grants program. Yeah, I think that's right. It's in the front end and the back end. What do we learn from experience on the back end? So how do we collect data so we can learn from experience? And on the front end, how do we encourage the grant programs to be more clear about what their objectives are, why they chose those objectives. So there has been in the last few years, some real progress, increased attention in this area, both from legislation that's passed and also from a cross-agency priority goal on grants where they're making some progress. There is, you know, what used to be called the catalog of federal domestic assistance has been redesigned, uh, sam.gov, beta.sam.gov. And You know, there's a place when you're putting out a grant application where you could say, why are these the outcome objectives? So in the, I I have an example in, in the report on improving grant transparency from the lead poisoning for children, that in the grant application, the notice at NOFO, it's called Notice of Financial Opportunity, they link to the action plan for lead poisoning in children. And they provide the trend history, prior actions taken by government, where progress has been made, why they think it's been made, maybe it's the right reasons or not, it's not a controlled study, but it looks pretty compelling, as well as what they plan to do next, which then helps the grant applicants think about, okay, how do I contribute? And you have the idea of the outcome broker would be something, an apparatus to be added to this whole thing. Is that a person? Is that a piece of technology? Is it a process? Or I'm guessing it's a combination of all of the above. Yes. So it is a term 
that I borrowed from the Government Accountability Office, a GAO report about the Recovery Implementation Office, and where you had this very small office for all of the recovery work, that they were actually working with people in the agencies to be clear about what their outcome objectives are, to figure out how they were going to measure progress. And it wasn't only the outcome objectives, but the risks, the financial risks, et cetera. The Recovery Implementation Office brought everybody together on a regular basis. Now, the vice president was now the president, but Joe Biden was very involved in this at the time. Deputy secretaries were involved at the time. And they came together on a very frequent basis and then also had even more frequent calls with the field. That's what I'm talking about. It doesn't have to be as massive as the Recovery Implementation Office. What's fascinating to me, though, is that office was not funded, whereas the Recovery Accountability and Transparency Board was was funded. Same thing happened on the most recent legislation, the second to most recent, the first COVID, which was PRAC was funded, which was the IGs, but not an organization to manage. I believe the most recent legislation has funded a group in Treasury, which hopefully will manage like the Recovery Implementation Office. But you know what? You can also do that for things like, let's just take broadband access, which we've learned through COVID has great inequities. You could have a goal leader on broadband access. During the Obama administration, we had a goal leader for broadband access and progress was made. We need outcome brokers for every outcome objective. If that exists already, great. You don't need to create it. If it doesn't, then the grant office needs to figure out, okay, should we create it? And then who's on that team? Whether it's in the grant office or it's in the evaluation office or it's in a data shop, it's another agency, it's even, you know, somewhere in the nonprofits. But you need the data, you need the findings of well-designed trials to figure out where to focus, to find ways to improve, and then to increase adoption of better practices and reduce the use of less good ones. That requires both conversations and analysis. And the other thing is new technologies make that analysis and those conversations more feasible and affordable in a timely way than ever before. Basically, then, the government has the muscle that it needs. It simply needs to exercise apparatuses and mechanisms that are in the toolbox now. I'm mixing my metaphors, but that's the idea. In many ways, yes. And then the other thing it needs to do is think about the incentive structures and the accountability expectations. If we think, if we start to, and, and I see the language all the time, it's it's not about funding what works and defunding what doesn't. If the problem still exists, you need to find what works first, and then you need to find what works better, what's more effective and cost effective. If you can't find what works, you need to put more money into that. So the learning agendas are an opportunity to sort of say, where are the knowledge gaps? Let's fill them. But don't manage the learning agenda separate from the grant program. Let's get this as a coherent whole. But beyond that, let's make sure the oversight bodies, whether it is the grant program doing oversight of the grant recipients, it's the IG doing it of the grant program, or it's GAO doing it of the grant program, Let's hold people accountable for clarity of outcome objectives, for finding the data they need to find ways to improve, and then bringing people together to use the information to, and you know, when do I need to do a well-designed trial? How do I get that going? 
you know, but bring them together continually to find out how to improve continuously. We need to get those incentive structures right. You know, Office of Personnel Management needs to make sure that senior executives are not being held accountable for meeting targets or doing better than others, but rather for clarity of outcome objectives and then managing to improve using evidence. Shelley Metzenbaum is, among other things, founding president of the Volcker Alliance and author of a recent IBM Center for the Business of Government report on grants management. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it is always great to hang out with you and talk about these wonderful government geeky topics. All right. We're the Geeky Topic Station, and we'll post this interview along with a link to that IBM report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments saying, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. 
And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? 
Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.